Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan. I'm here as usual with Benjamin Red, And today we're going to be talking about the lira, the Lebanese currency, with Dan Azzi, former chairman of Standard Chartered Bank and a Harvard fellow. Hello, Dan. Hello, Nizar. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you for coming. So we're going to go to, into the lira things later, but let's start with the news. Ben, first of all, are you going to the marathon tomorrow? Are you running it? Are you kidding me? Of course not. <laughs> uh, you you know the answer to this, Nizar. I, it, if all goes according to plan, I, I will hopefully be nursing a hangover tomorrow morning, not not making myself healthier like one of these people running a marathon. That's just, it's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, we, we've got a we've got a ton of news that we're going to just like speed through today uh, in order to get to our main topic. Uh, super excited to have you here, Dan. We've got uh, as of today on Monday when this episode drops 173 days now without a government 171 days since Hariri was designated to form that government. Of course, we, we passed the window uh, and, and we, we've sort of beat this uh, horse to death on this podcast. We, we passed the window where cabinet formation was like a real possibility and was imminent. It no longer seems to be so. We still have the same issue of the six so-called independent Sunni MPs who are demanding a seat. They met with Alan on Friday, but there's no there's been no change in positions. Uh, Hezbollah continues to stand behind them. Uh, we're, we're recording this on Saturday morning. This afternoon, Nasrallah's uh, scheduled to speak for the, the day of the martyr. And, and he's expected to reaffirm Hezbollah's support. Uh, basically, they're holding up the cabinet formation, and there is no sign that this will end anytime soon. In, in addition to that, we have Hariri is in Paris, uh, which I kind of think is a problem. <laughs> he, he left about a week ago, right? One, once things became clear that there wasn't going to be a cabinet formation. And to me, this is sort of a larger problem, at least in the optics, right? It looks like he's running away from the problem. Whether that's the case or not, people uh, who follow Hariri and people who, uh, who are with Mustafbal would say, no, that's not the case. But it looks like it. when the going gets tough, Hariri leaves the country and goes back to France. And that is an optics problem that I don't think that Hariri has really grappled with. And he really needs to. Yeah, uh, I agree. doesn't look good. We, we also have Parliament look, looking to the week ahead. Monday and Tuesday, Parliament's going to be meeting uh, in, a, in a regular session, a regular legislative session. It, it looks as if the quorum will be met. It looks like uh, Mustafbal is going to take part. The LF is going to take part. Uh, there are 38 items on the agenda, including like a Tripoli port expansion, the cancer drugs funding, which was sort of the deal breaker. If you remember the September session of parliament where like the LF walked out, right? That is on the agenda this time, funding for cancer drugs. There's a commission, the commission to investigate the disappeared from the civil war that that's also on the agenda. It's been bumped up to item number 19, I I believe. Uh, Last time it was the last item on the agenda. Now it's somewhere in the middle. And and also we have funding for electricity, which is an important thing, because if you remember this past week, there was rationing happening from EDL. Uh, More rationing. Yeah. And (laughs) there was this whole question about whether EDL was going to cut production even further over the week. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sort of a solution was worked out, sort of. They they kind of fixed it. The Algerian state oil company, Sonatrack, came to the rescue, and they are giving us fuel for, I guess it's based on some sort of gentleman's agreement or something, whereby they're going to give us fuel right now, and we're not going to pay them because we there's some weird thing where we cannot like legally pay them yet, but then we will pay them at some point in the future. And, and so there is a solution, but it's not formal and it's not permanent. So this, this is another issue that might crop up in the future. Uh, we, we don't know. 
Although we've been assured that, you know, that they will fix things and that they're working on things. And if, if this bill passes through Parliament, then maybe it, it, it will actually be fixed, right? Well, I hope we don't get stuck with the Algerian company the same way we got stuck with the Turkish power barges. And then every year we have to take fuel from the same company. That would that be is, a never-ending sad story. That is the kind of the way things work, though. So yeah. Also related to electricity this week, we have the generator owners. They went on strike. From 5 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday night, a whole bunch of them, I don't think all of them, but a whole bunch of them just shut off production. So if you didn't have state electricity from 5 to 7 p.m. and you were relying on your generator owner, well, you were in the dark, literally. And and this didn't really go down too well because both the uh, justice and the economy ministries came out and said, we're not going to put up with this shit. They called in like 21 owners, I think as of Thursday, they, they called them in for investigation at state security, which is one of the major security agencies in the country. And according to uh, the state prosecutor, Samir Hamoud, 19 of them, 19 of these 21 said that they would install the meters very quickly, but, but not all of them, right? Like one, one of the generator owners, one of those two that, that didn't say that they would install it, you know, said, ah, I was requested to sign this thing that, uh, this pledge that I would install a meter, meter, uh, within a period of three weeks, but I refused. And he specifically cited what the generator owners have been citing all along is that the price is just too low. The price that is set that they're allowed to charge customers that's too low. And that price is set by the energy ministry, right? Uh, yeah. So they're, they're really angry about this. They want the energy minister to raise that price to something higher. And then they say, oh, well, well, then we'll install them if you raise the price higher. But what I found very interesting about this piece of news this week is that how Khoury responded, how Ra'ad Khoury, our economy minister, responded is he didn't only say you have to put uh, the meters and otherwise you will be punished. He also said... If you cut electricity again, we can confiscate your generators because this electricity is a public service and depriving people of a public service that they are already getting is something that by law is punishable and uh, allows the government to confiscate and give it to the municipality or to local residents to run the generators, which is awesome, right? I mean, I love the idea, but he wasn't very clear on the legal terms in terms of what are the laws that allow this, because it's, it's very different from from one country to another. And I'm not sure in Lebanon how this will would work, uh, confiscating something that is purely a private property, like a generator in the backyard of someone's house. But the idea in general is, is really nice. Like it's uh, the state saying that we would do this is is balancing the powers a bit because the the private generators owners have been acting as like uh, with with a lot of impunity as if you know there's no punishment for what they're doing yeah it, it, it's really important for us to say that they are they are viewed like sort of as a mafia they yeah. uh they are really really unpopular just with with people in general uh and so when they're out there complaining about their profits and complaining about this stuff that doesn't really get a whole lot of traction with you know m- most of Lebanon and and what do they do they have generators and then they use the public electricity poles to get electricity to people's houses and they charge them much more than they should be because the energy ministry gives them a specific um, amount per kilowatt and they don't stick to it. They charge much higher prices. So people are getting electricity for a high price just because they, they, they only have one option in the market, which is this guy. And this means that they have monopoly over parts of villages or parts of towns or whole villages sometimes. So what they're doing is like being completely like pure rentiers, you know, getting money without doing any work at all and using the state's facilities. Yeah. And, and another interesting thing here, though, is just that I, I was really surprised that they they went this far, that they decided to strike. 
because how do you think this is going to end? Do you think this is going to end well for you? Uh, apparently they did. They 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 thought in their calculus that this was going to work for them. Clearly it's it's it doesn't seem to be working, right? 19 of the 21 who were called in backtracked immediately. Uh, you don't have the popular support and so if you're a generator owner, I I don't really see how you continue to hold this line, you yeah. know, where you need to be paid more money. I mean, it's also important to to state that we we all complain about the government not doing much, not reforming, and so forth. I mean, here's one minister, without regards to his what his party has done or hasn't done, uh, who's come in and taken on a very sensitive issue. He took him on, and he took him on head on, and he actually made the, a, a lot of leeway, a lot of uh, progress towards it. I think that you know the Lebanese public, when when the government does something good for a change, you know there should be support in the street and the media etc by the people instead of always questioning uh even the good stuff you know when so when the government doesn't do anything lebanese people complain and then when they do something instead of supporting this guy Raid Khouri, they are continuing to i mean i hear it a lot they can complain that it's all a an act that nothing is going to happen blah 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 well certainly nothing will happen if you leave him alone fighting this thing instead of supporting him yeah i think what di- what takes a bit away from the credibility is what you said the the political background the fpm being the ministry that has been holding the energy ministry for long and has been blamed by other parties now and by a lot of people for not doing like serious electricity reforms. Yeah, but now at at the same time, now you have three FPM ministers coming out and basically doing this, you know, not all on their own, but like largely, uh, you know, Rad Khouri, FPM, Salim Zurasati, FPM, or close to the FPM, and, and also the uh, Cesar Rabi Khalil, FPM, with, with the support of Nohad Mashnu, uh, no, future. No, I mean, let's be clear. Nohad Mashnu was crucial to get this done because, the, the, I mean, the Ministry of Economy does not have the legal right to do it. So it wasn't an FPM thing. It was, frankly, a bunch of guys from different parties for a change working together to get this done. So this was this is a, an example of how Lebanon should function. It's, it's one of the few positive examples. It's not a success story yet, but I think we owe it to these guys to support them and give them the benefit of the doubt. Support them publicly, not just keep criticizing all the time. Yeah, and, and like you say, it's, it's not a done deal. It's not a success story yet, but it is moving in the right direction. And yeah, I agree. Uh, very quickly, I'd also like to mention Mia Wumie. It seems as though y- you guys will remember that last month, uh, things just fucking erupted there, leading to the deaths of like at least five people injured, a, cu- a couple dozen at least. That seems to have finally been solved now. There was a deal, uh, I believe it was made Monday, that gave the leader of Ansar Allah, one of the main uh, fighting factions in this 72 hours to leave. The leader, a man by the name of Jamal Suleiman, he left Tuesday night, reportedly fled to Syria. And so this seems to to be it. This seems to be sort of like a final-ish solution to those clashes. And and so I, I wouldn't expect that there would be a whole lot more fighting or fighting to breakout for the ceasefire you know these ceasefires kept on breaking down and everything well it seems as though well maybe it's not going to break down anymore yeah we hope so and and finally one thing for this week that we just have to mention because it is too good not to mention (laughs) yeah our friend and colleague Timur Asari, friend of the show, he was on the show uh, a few weeks back. He interviewed the tourism minister, the caretaker tourism minister, Avidis Gidanian, and Gidanian had some colorful things to say. Uh, he he totally dragged Egypt. You know, t- speaking about like Lebanese pollution, right? Which we've we talked about as well on this podcast. He said, "Well, you know." Look at Egypt. I mean, is there any place dirtier than that? People are louder than us. There's more traffic here. Uh, people live in graves, but they know how to sell their country. So there's tourism. 
It's so rude. And like, it's not like he's, he's blaming media for something that is not media responsibility. And then he's being rude to another country. That's so wrong on so many levels. Yeah, he apologized the same day that that article was printed. Yeah. The the, the Egyptian ambassador, I, I don't think, was very happy. It's not the first faux pas that this gentleman has uh, conducted. I think a couple of years ago as well, when they, on a talk show, they asked him if his loyalty was primarily to Lebanon or the country of his ancestry and as a minister of tourism he decides to choose uh, the country of his uh, of his ancestry even though he was born here and he he became a minister and a representative in government so uh, yeah he's very colorful I, I would say and and there are more colorful quotes in this in this piece I uh, by Temur I highly recommend everybody go go read it, it it's a it's a great read all right, so that's the news. Uh, but this week, we want to do sort of a deep dive into a topic that ever everybody's talking about, and and that is the financial stability of Lebanon, the stability of the lira peg to the dollar. There's there's a lot of talk right now. It is the economy stable? Is the state financial system stable? And the financial system in general is that stable? Is the currency peg? going to last or is there going to be some sort of devaluation every couple of days it seems the uh, governor of the central bank uh, Riyad Saleme comes out and says there is nothing to worry about everything is fine the the lira is sound the currency peg is sound don't worry so I, I think it's important for us to sort of like drill down. And then this is why we have uh, Dan Azzi on the show this week, uh, because Dan has a way of explaining things uh, th- that is very uh, just cuts right to the heart of it. And, and so we're going to try to just basically go through why is everybody talking about this and why is this important? With the least amount of uh, financial jargon that we can possibly use. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So, I mean, in any discussion like this needs to start out with, well, what what is the Lebanese economy based on? How do we make our money? What kinds of activities are actually productive in Lebanon? Well, I, I, I think calling the Lebanese economy in its present state an economy is a bit of a is a bit of a stretch. I mean, an economy is something that has manufacturing, it has tourism, it has uh, knowledge economy and so on. I, I think our economy, especially for the last uh, decade or so, it was really based on remittances into the country of various kinds uh, that got plowed into stuff like real estate and stuff like lending the government. And of course, if the government gets uh, money from an easy source, what are they going to do? They're going to spend it and then some. So from that perspective, this is ha- this has been how our economy has functioned. And of course, what do we what do we what do we do with the with the money that we make? We import stuff. We don't make stuff in the country. So looking around this room, I see, you know, your shoes, glasses, the mattress, the laptop, uh, everything is made overseas and we have to pay dollars for that. Except Ben's shirt, uh, that looks like it was made here in Burj Hamoud. I went with something colorful today. <laughs> Local craft. So uh, if I understand it well, the big problem that we have is uh, what is called current accounts deficit, which is that we have more money leaving the country than entering it. We're talking about exports and imports, but also just money going in and out. And this has been a problem since 2011. The current accounts deficit has been increasing. There seems to be no point where this is changing. And this is what's making everyone very worried. For Lebanese people, it's self-evident that the, the dollar is equal to 1,500 Lebanese pounds. But I think it's it's important to uh, kind of explain wh- why this happened in the first place and how, why it made sense when it did. Yeah, let's, let's back up a bit and just talk about the peg, what it is and how it's maintained and everything. The peg came in back in the 90s uh, after a period uh, during the Civil War and right after the Civil War of massive inflation. One dollar used to buy you something like three lira, right? Yeah. And today, one dollar will buy you like 1,500 lira. 
well, back in the early 90s, that number spiked way, way up to 2,700, something like that, right? 2,892. And so at that point, the policymakers decided, first off, bring that number back down and then to peg it at around 1,500 to the dollar. Uh, and that's been in place since uh, 97, 98. Back then, that was actually a good thing, though, right? Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, in the early 90s, when PEG was put in place, you this was crucial to make sure that the confidence is restored in the local currency. This is not something new. Argentina did the same thing the first time around, the second time around, and they'll probably do it again. Venezuela will probably do it eventually when they get out of their crisis. So it's necessary to do it for one, two, three, four, five years. The problem is that we've had it for 20 years. Now, there are some benefits that we had over the first, say, 15 years, which can be summarized in the fact that the average Lebanese Yusuf average Joe, has had a standard of living much higher than his productivity would have entailed had the currency been floating. And also, as far as I know, this had, has had positive effects on like stability and like confidence in the economy in terms of people having the trauma of the civil war and the currency devaluating are now more confident that things will remain the same So for investments and for deposits coming in. Because as you said, the Lebanese economy is highly dependent on money coming in, remittances and also deposits in banks uh, for high interest rates. But what have been the negative effects of it in terms of uh, maybe crowding out private investment or other things that you might think would be the negative side of this policy? I mean, I think there's, for whatever reason, there's a misconception in the country that the peg in and of itself is a is a goal. You know, if the peg is there, then we're doing good. If the peg is not there, then we're doing bad. And this is pegged to the U.S. dollar. I mean, in my mind, the U.S. dollar itself is pegged to the U.S. dollar at one-to-one. I'm being facetious here. Since Mm. 1776. If that were a policy in and of itself, then you don't need a Federal Reserve, an American Central Bank. Now, you've got to look at what are we trying to achieve. In an an economy, what you want is low inflation, which is defined in respectable countries as 2% or lower. And you want low unemployment, which is defined as something between 5 to 10%. On both those counts, especially unemployment, we're doing very, very badly. Unemployment rate, according to the World Bank, is 37% among young people. So what this peg has done is the fact that it allowed people that are employed to have a good salary higher than they need to have. This has been at the expense of all those guys unemployed. So if there's three of us here, each of us, you're, you're making a thousand, I'm making a thousand a month, and Ben is making zero, the average of the three of us is $666 a month. So you can either have two of us making two thousand and him zero, or you can have the three of us making six. I don't need to. I don't mean to sound like a Marxist, but that is a fact. And which is, is not a bad thing, <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> but yeah, as you said, like this means that people are consuming maybe more than what the economy, more than the size of their economy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in any country, you need to have a balanced, what's called balance of payment. Blom Invest did a phenomenal report on this thing. And frankly, I was surprised that they were able to get it through the internal censors. But they basically said between 2006 to 2010, $19.5 billion came into the country, balance of payments. And this is because of all the flight of capital and so forth during the crisis. However, from 2011 to today, uh, almost $14 billion walked out of the country. So that means that, uh, you know, we've got a problem. Like, you need to balance the payments. So in a place like Japan, for example, you know, they might buy something like steel and then they sell a Toyota. They turn the steel into a Toyota. In our case, since we do not manufacture anything, since we do not have anything that anyone wants to buy, except maybe peaches from Bekfaya or plums, or maybe some wine from the Bekaha, uh, therefore we need to import dollars in to return this. And the way we used to do this is through three sources. One was uh, foreign direct investment, one was remittances, and the third was tourism. 
Now, foreign direct investment, most people don't know what that is. I'll give you two examples, like, for example, the marina or this project, the Beit Misik, uh, that was funded by Amar uh, to build a, actually, actually a, a pretty good project. They, they've got, they built an infrastructure, made a mini Lebanon. They have DSL, they have uh, electricity, not through generate, you know, their own generators and so forth. It's sort of like the way Lebanon should be because they built the infrastructure, sewage, and so forth. So uh, that, for example, FDI normally would do that to the whole country instead of just, uh, you know, that small area in Beit Misik. You know, most developers can't afford to do that kind of thing. Now, anyway, FDI has stopped after those two projects. FDI stopped. Uh, the other one is tourism. The problem with tourism, which used to bring in seven, eight billion, now it's bringing in something like four billion. Except because Lebanon is so expensive, Lebanese tourists outside are preferring to go spend the money outside. So net net tourism today is almost zero. So that leaves the remittances. Remittances about seven, eight billion. That's not enough to to fund the economy, which needs something like one point six billion dollars every month to go outside. Okay, so how is the peg actually maintained? in practice then i mean first off i think it's important to note that it i mean we said it's like 1500 to one that that's not technically correct technically the lira actually does float within this tiny little narrow band between uh 1501 and 1514 and bank has to well they, they do a, a couple of things to maintain this right so one of them is just saying coming out and saying, we are going to defend this, which deters some people uh, from uh, speculating uh, or trying to go outside of that band, right? And then the other thing is, uh, like, they do, though, also have to back that up occasionally uh, by buying or selling uh, uh, currency, right? Yeah, I mean, they have to step in. Anytime there's excessive demand for dollars, they have to be the seller of last resort, and they have to buy up the stuff with the with the foreign currency uh, reserves at the rate of, you know, 1507.5, and the band, like like Ben said, up to 1515, right? So for him to be able to do that, he you need a, a steady supply, which is no longer happening. This is one of the reasons why those so-called financial engineering transactions have been done. And the problem is that most Lebanese don't know what those are. I mean, when you in Lebanon, when you say engineering, because everybody from when he was a kid is told you need to be an engineer or marry one, uh, it must be a good thing. But, you know, I, I like to compare the financial engineering to the book Kama Sutra. Uh, basically, each chapter has a you know different position. But when you when you look that deep down into it, uh, it amounts to the same result. In the same way, with the financial engineering, when you take out all the bells and whistles, it amounts to one thing as well, which is Bank A gives the central bank dollars central bank gives him lira back at the rate of something like 2000 to 2500 lira that's basically what what it uh, what it uh, boils down to so i think to explain it very simply what pdl tries to do is control how much dollars there is in the market to make sure that the lira is as any other item is more expensive or cheaper and it needs to make sure that the lira does not get too cheap compared to the dollar and basically this is in very simple terms how this um, this peg thing happens in practice. So it's all about the central bank um, manipulating the, the amount of currency that exists in the market. Right. And in order to do that, they need just a pile of dollars sitting around ready to go to intervene. Right. Exactly. And, and that's why and that's why, you know, when we're talking about these financial engineering operations that, that they've done. Well, that that's the whole point of them. Right. It, it's so that BDL can just like stockpile a whole bunch of dollars uh, in, in their saves. Right. I mean, actually, there's a bit of a misconception on this one, you know, because the, what's been reported in the media is that there's 44 billion and people assume that the 44 billion is constant, like, you know, the same serial numbers, nothing has changed. But in fact, these have to be replenished every time the 44 billion keeps going down and then they have to be replenished 
replenished by by the banks sending more money in. Mm-hmm. So it's not a constant amount of money. And this has nothing to do with protecting the, the currency per se. It's to, to finance the Lebanese economy, the imports. Yeah. So we've had um, many financial engineering operations that have been quite controversial. A lot of people um, criticized them, especially economists. Um, we had in 2016, one in May, and then June 2017, November 2017, and then May 2018. So this financial engineering takes uh, several forms, right? And these are very, very complex financial operations. But the base, two basic forms is that there's a swap between the central bank and the finance ministry or between the central bank and commercial banks in a way that allows the central bank to bring in dollars to its reserve. And one of the reasons why this has been criticized is that in terms of economic policy, reducing the number of dollars or the amount of dollars in the market, especially when you're selling euro bonds to banks and then the banks putting their, uh, their dollars in the central central bank to buy these euro bonds what you're doing is reducing the amount of dollars but the demand for dollars will remain the same which means that the interest on dollars loans and deposits has to go up and then on the long term this means that also the interest on lira accounts has to go up because the lira accounts always have to be higher than the dollar accounts otherwise people won't be won't have the demand for the lira right there's a there's a risk premium yeah exactly one of the reasons why the lebanese have their accounts in lira uh, for example if you have a deposit account is that you get you get extremely high interest if you switch your savings now from uh, dollars to lebanese lira uh, in a deposit account in a bank they would give you an interest rate up to 17% insane absolutely insane you can double your money in 4 years which you cannot do in any kind of investment which is logically very bad for the private sector the actual economy it can't possibly continue for that much longer right well you you got to ask yourself if he's paying you 17% that means he must be putting it somewhere making let's say 22%. So where is he investing it in to make 22%? That's more than Warren Buffett has ever earned. And he's investing it in the central bank which is in the end a public institution. So it's our money funding the profits of the banks and then we get very very high interest on loans. So eventually it's re- it's a really bad deal for us if the central bank keeps doing this on the long term because it's our money being transferred to the literally the richest and the, the only economic sector in the country that is making huge profits. Yeah, and so it seems like the pressure is really piling up on the central bank in in a lot of terms, but especially, you know, in terms of just like having this dollar backstop, having these piles of dollars sitting around. And so we see these financial operations, uh, we see these uh, other things that they're doing. You know, there there were these uh, uh, reports back in January that the central bank was going to stop anyone from withdrawing dollars from ATMs here, which is insane in the Lebanese context uh, because a lot of people have, you know, dollar uh, accounts, something like two-thirds of all deposits in banks are in dollars, not in lira. And so if you can't withdraw your dollars from your account, then that's really weird. I I remember I I was in the newsroom at the Daily Star when we heard that this was a policy that could be coming down from BDL. And immediately, like within the next half hour, I left the office, went to the ATM and withdrew the maximum amount of cash that I could in dollars. It was like, holy shit, what's going on? on here. And of course, they didn't implement the policy. They denied that this was ever going to happen. But it's one of those things uh, that, you know, at, at least for me, it really sort of freaked me out. Yeah. And I think if we um, regarding like this confidence matter, right, if we don't have political stability and people feel that things might collapse at any moment, 
this can happen any day like even if it's not a real policy even if it's a, a, a report that is very widely circulated and people take similar action to what you have done which is completely irresponsible Ben <laughs> sorry <laughs> um, this means that we will have a, a collapse of, of the Lebanese lira which we'll talk about in a second through like this panic right the collective panic so now that the uncertainty is kind of dominating over the country especially with no government and the socioeconomic situation deteriorating etc everyone's talking about the currency collapsing the devaluation of the lira some people saying for example that it might lose half of its value and what this might have in terms of impact on people's purchasing power but i think it's it's good to give some background on why the devaluation of the lira now is as being discussed apart from this panic which is the fact that over the years since we've had this pegged currency policy the international monetary fund have been supporting lebanon's policy of pegging the the lebanese lira to the dollar because of the benefits the benefits that we mentioned however in its reports this year uh, in february and june imf was more critical for the first time they said all these economic indicators are clear uh, they indicate that the lebanese lira is overvalued that the exchange rate is not real and they also said that even if lebanon abides by the imf recommendations in terms of uh, increasing uh, revenues and limiting spending uh, eliminating budget deficit um, increasing electricity prices etc even these things won't balance the current ad- account deficit on the long term or in the short term so which means that they are hinting very clearly that we need to float our currency so this is a good opportunity to be thinking how this might happen right how the devaluation might happen this can be a policy from Lebanon's central bank and the government saying we want to float the currency which is what happened in Egypt recently but it can it can also be a market dynamic people increasing the demand for the dollar people buying the dollars in huge amounts which means that the central bank won't be able to balance it and then the market price of the dollars goes up and against what against the Lebanese lira this means devaluation and yeah and, and you might you might think that uh, oh well obviously the first one's better right like if it's going to happen then it should be managed it should be planned and everything but then like there's dangers there as well you know a, a lot of people would argue like, well once you open that box that pandora's box who knows what happens things might get really out of hand so much so that bdl is no longer able to really manage the float exactly i mean the main argument uh, and dan i'd like to know your opinion about this but the main argument that i know about floating the currency is that it makes producing things and exporting them cheaper and this would on the long term fix the trade deficit is there any other argument for it well you have to start out with the reverse of that so the advantage that it had like we said before for the peg was basically it gave an average lebanese citizen higher standard of living than he should have had based on productivity and this is fine as a policy decision uh, you can tax it like the french or the americans have a social welfare system where if you're unemployed you get a salary financed by the taxes of say ben in the same way we financed the average citizen through a tax virtual tax not a real tax uh, taxing the gcc national coming here the expat and the unemployed the increased unemployment is a form of tax so that was the benefit however today because the country is so expensive and because there are no more uh, no sufficient dollars is coming in we are financing this by borrowing from the future so therefore mm. the, the advantage would be that we would uh, reduce our debt burden which is sooner or later uh, is going to come to a head and practically what this means is that so apart from this we have as we said reducing the cost of production which means that people's salaries because people earn their salaries in Lebanese lira most people earn their salaries in Lebanese lira people's salaries would be lower compared to the dollar so factories for example producing things that will be exported will be benefiting because they can produce and export cheaper 
And also, the thing that is always talked about by the IMF and the World Bank, that the public spending in Lebanon is very high, the, the employ- public sector employment is too costly. This would also be affected directly because the Lebanese lira salaries uh, would be much cheaper. So the 300,000 people employed in, gov- in, the, in the public sector will be much cheaper to employ. Basically, a, a massive salary cut. Right. Exactly. And like people traveling abroad or buying imported products will be way poorer to make this like very clear. And uh, this means people will be traveling less, will be buying less um, luxurious items. But also some of our basic necessities that we are buying now are being imported because the government, the post-Civil War government had at no point any kind of industrial policy to revive the Lebanese industrial sector. So we're talking about an economy that depend is dependent on importing almost everything as the was saying so this means that we will be everyone will be worse off everyone who's getting the their salaries in Lebanese lira and that's a problem too just because there's really no industry to speak of here exactly and this is what Riyad Salemi our central governor bank governor said reportedly in a meeting according to Al-Akhbari newspaper that the IMF should not be recommending floating the currency because we don't have any sectors that will be like really benefiting from it it's just that everyone will be poorer so he's very firmly against this policy and he's being supported by economists from this left right and center on this uh, people who are saying people's purchasing power is the priority do not at all support floating the currency I mean I think it's a chicken an egg problem too. So yeah, he, he, there is no industry because according to how much air Sebench mentioned, I think that 300 or 400 factories closed in the last few years. So there is no industry because the cost basis is too high. So if the cost basis is low, then we would be competitive. But I've read, for example, uh, Albert Dager, an economist, a Lebanese economist, saying that this is not a good argument because in 1992, when the devaluation happened, this did not have any positive impact. So the last time that the lira devaluated did not have any positive impact on the industrial sector. So I wonder if this time it would be different with the industrial sector not really improving? I, I mean, just because it didn't have a positive impact, I mean, I don't totally agree with that. I mean, it's, a, it's apples and oranges. First of all, we didn't have the massive debt we have today. Uh, so it was a totally different situation. So the devaluation that happened back then was, was uh, was let's say there was less pressure for it than there is today. Uh, and, you know, again, the anal- you know, the analogy, just because then it didn't benefit. In any event, we're not saying it's good or bad. What we're saying is, is it avoidable or not avoidable? That's it. Do we do we do we want to continue to pay the price of increasing our dollar debt to maintain it forever? Because you know the, our debt is going up to 180 percent. So if you maintain it for the next couple of years, our debt to GDP ratio is going to be 200 percent. Could be 300 percent. So sooner or later, you have to deal with this issue. So what do you think, Dan, is 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 an alternative to floating the currency right now that would achieve a similar positive outcome but without the cost? Is there any alternative being discussed among like economists or? Well, yeah, you can follow the IMF advice: increase taxes fire public sector employees, fire private sector employees. Good luck. <laughs> this won't happen for all sorts of political reasons in, in, in the Lebanese clientelist system. Although it would give us a lot to talk about on future podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, and I think our economy should move towards more evolved, higher types of industries on the, let's say, economic food chain. Things like selling zeros and ones, selling ideas. If you look at a country like the United States, which frankly is outsources now a lot of the stuff, including computer chips and stuff like that, yet the iPhone is very, very American, even though 
although most of the components are not even made in America. So in our case here, one of the things we do, which is, in my opinion, idiotic, is you know we try to collect tax in ways that increases the cost basis, like uh, MTC, Ogero, all those companies that overcharge for communications, and those are crucial for the knowledge economy that we need. Uh, things like uh, the flights, flights, you know, our our airlines have a monopoly, and and they charge you know six seven hundred dollars for a flight trip that should cost you two hundred or a hundred dollars. Now, granted, that's a form of tax, but instead of using that tax to cut the government deficit, what do they do? They employ more people. So you know, making the the airline not that profitable. In my mind, you increase direct flights to places like New York. We're the only country in this region that doesn't have direct flights to New York, for example. I mean, that would incentivize somebody that makes a lot of money on Wall Street to fly here for for three days over the weekend and spend some dollars here. You know, the communication it costs, if they go down, then we can produce apps, we can sell apps, we can do outsourcing of software, of programming, all kinds of stuff, which is frankly very cheap. You don't need a factory to do that stuff. Yeah, so maybe a recommendation or like the conclusion would be that the government has options in terms of industrial policy on the long term that it can pursue in order to bring in the dollars. Apart from reducing people's salaries to floating the currency, there is economic development policy that can be effective on this end. And I think, as you were saying, if we're talking about the knowledge economy, I think in terms of a, a population and education indicators, we are capable of doing this. We don't really lack like any major uh, kind of resources in order to do this kind of industrial policy, right? Yeah, and if you have to borrow money from the government, instead of financing imports or stuff like that, that we have nothing to show for it, you know, how about we construct a monorail, a high-speed monorail or train from Tripoli all the way to Sur, for example, and then impose for a dollar it'll take you a dollar to get from Tripoli to here and then impose a toll for all cars that come in that are not high occupancy vehicles five dollars to get into Beirut you reduce traffic you reduce pollution you employ people building the, the this high-speed train and you make the, the country more efficient in terms of transportation and getting from one place to the next that's totally a, a top priority for us like a good railway network it, it, yeah it, it's in the top like thousand or so priorities <laughs> uh, yeah I, I think there's a lot uh, that we've talked about here uh, that we could really get into a lot further, a lot more in depth. But but thanks so much for coming on the show, Dan. Uh, you've really given me a lot to think about. Um, and, and I think we will we will get into more of this in future episodes uh, when we have uh, really the time to expand on this. Yes, thank you indeed, Dan, for coming. Um, it was very good having you. Thank you for inviting me. It was an absolute pleasure. So we'll be back next Monday unless uh, there's a government very early in the week. Then, as promised, we can have a special episode about the government, about the cabinet. Oh, yeah, we'll go nuts on that shit. Yeah. Until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Rad. I'm Dan Azzi. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.